All right, welcome back, everybody. This is uh, Alex Davis. No, I am Alex Davis, and this is the Faultline Podcast. There we go. This is accompanying issue number 887. Joining me is uh, our esteemed editor, Tommy Flanagan. Hello. My esteemed colleague, Rafi Cohen, is helping me out with Rethink TV. Hi. So, Tommy, it's been a tough week, isn't it? But we've got an exclusive, I think. Yeah, well, a few, actually. Some great original content in this week's issue. We've got a few interviews. Um some some heated panel discussions some some rants alex <laughs> some um some great stuff but uh, yeah our lead story is um an interesting one it, it started out with a tip-off from a fault line reader as um as many exclusive stories do um mentioning the zapware uh, which is a belgian uh video middleware developer um it's, it's been going about 20 years has been acquired by a venture capital firm called Reinhardt Capital. And there had been no press releases or any any news on it. And the, the reader was asking um, why there hadn't been any coverage, um, essentially. So we did a bit of digging and um, managed to get Reinhardt Capital on the phone. And um, we, we found out that there was actually a press release on it uh, about two weeks ago, but it had only been issued in Dutch and um no one else had picked up on it really that um no one else in the world had got this so yeah it became our exclusive which is which is great and it was um it was uh great that we got Reinhardt capital on the phone they they spoke really freely i say they it's um it's a, a one-man band jan Reinhardt. <laughs> he's um uh silicon valley former silicon valley engineer who's um started up his own um uh, vc firm so he's acquired 100 percent shares in um zapware and, and when we first heard the news and got the tip off from our reader we're, we're thinking alarm bells um the two big c's consolidation commoditization um and and he was he was quite accepting of these trends um but um the the real message the real important thing here is that he's he's trying to take zapware outside of tv um he was he didn't really give us any specifics on what markets he wants to take them into or what technologies from the Zapware portfolio um, he wants to take outside of TV. But he's very adamant and truly believes that the the there are other areas that can benefit from these technologies. So we just have a look um, at uh, Zapware's portfolio. It's got um, middleware, as I mentioned, user management, business intelligence, CDN software, origin server, storage options for VOD and network PVR, and a front-end development team. But what we did manage to establish is that whatever shape Zapware's transformation might take in the future outside of TV, uh, microservices are going to be at the core of that. And I know it's still... it's still quite difficult, that said, to imagine how Zapware might transfer these services outside of TV, um, given that it's been so successful in pay TV and rooted there for for two decades. But um, Jan Reinhardt, um, the co-founder, he has a background in enterprise software. So I think that's where we could potentially see Zapware expand, maybe in the business intelligence into enterprise software, potentially into the telco markets too. We we did our very best to scratch below the surface, but 
um, as honest as he was in, in some areas, he really wasn't um, given many clues as, as to where he's going to take it. But it was a, a really interesting uh, conversation. He was um, he was attracted by the uh, by the, the talented and creative team, um, as he described it, as well as the the assets. And we shouldn't forget, of course, that Zap has got some really quite lucrative contracts in place. It's just started making waves at um, A1 Group in um, in Europe, uh, expanding into which is an Austrian operator, expanding into Croatia and uh, Slovenia too. So there's a lot of money there to be had, and these are the kind of contracts where they'll go on for quite a while, and you've got to maintain these contracts. There's still a lot of money left in it so yeah some we've been promised um exclusive first insights into into future news and and things like that and there was an interesting um comment actually from from Jan. he said one of the first things he learned in uh, silicon valley is that any software company that doesn't evolve every 18 months is dead in the water so we've kind of set this 18 month countdown for zapware to evolve and reinvent itself and it, if it doesn't um, do anything in that time, then then his investment is uh, essentially wasted, and we'll uh, we'll circle back with him in eighteen months' time and and find out. Yeah, good stuff. It's uh, yeah, we we see a lot of these acquisitions that then you know fire everyone, service the contracts until they die, and you know you've increased the margin. They're pretty brutal, but mm-hmm. hopefully this one will do. But there's plenty of opportunity, I think, in business software for video expertise. So yeah. We'll, uh, we keep our eyes peeled. Thanks very much, Tommy. We'll move on now to our second story. That comes from Rafi. And the headline for this one is Iris.tv joins Datadots as connected TV fails to keep up with the times. So, Rafi, could you tell us more, please? Yeah, sure. So, um, Tommy wrote about Iris TV a couple of weeks back uh, and they caught our eye because they just raised um, $18 million in Series B funding, with the lead investor being Intel. Um, so, obviously, fairly substantial backer um and yeah we kind of just got on on the phone with them the ceo field garthwaite to find out more and kind of hear more about what they're doing because they recent they had a background in content recommendation and have recently moved into contextual intelligence which is obviously a word that is thrown around a lot uh, and can mean all sorts of things and nothing but um field said that what contextual intelligence means is essentially you know, defining video by standardized categories, you know, essentially basic genre labels. Um, And, you know, the IAB, the International Advertising Bureau, does do this for web-based video, but this is um, often by linking it to the URL of a page. Uh, And this is two problems, which is that often the URLs don't actually match the video that's being shown on the page. For instance, say you're on a cooking website and the recipe has a video on YouTube and you click that and then that video finishes and you go on to watch a related video on the same page. Whatever you're watching could be any kind of video and they have no idea what genre that is. And then the other main problem is that, you know, so much CTV content now doesn't even have a URL. So even that slightly faulty process won't work. Um, And what Iris TV is trying to do is to link up the companies that can create this contextual intelligence with the advertisers and uh, publishers and content providers that are trying to sell this and where this is most valuable is on CTV because it's still lacking some really basic advertising capabilities. Um, so yeah, the kind of contextual intelligence companies it's working with, uh, you know, uh, companies he described as kind of computer vision, people like Hive, Natura, IBM and Google, and then uh, companies that do that but with a much more kind of ad tech spin on things like Oracle, Grapeshot, GumGum, Zephyr. 
um, and they all have a wide variety of uh, creating like different methods of creating contextual intelligence. They can do things like video frame recognition or natural language processing uh, over text or audio. Um, and it just kind of goes to show that, the you know, it's really you really need a company that's kind of bridging all the gaps and linking the dots and standardizing all these different inputs so that people can really easily buy contextual intelligence or understand contextual intelligence before they uh, buy advertising inventory. Uh, and the other important thing is that all the kind of intelligence that's provided by these vendors isn't reliant on personal IDs and with the decline of the cookie and the IDFA petering out and the rise of privacy regulations everywhere. Uh, this is really important. A field said that he doesn't believe marketing requires surveillance capitalism. And that's really the, the message they're trying to drive home. Um, and the whole, I guess, the kind of whole business model of what Iris TV is trying to do is just get loads of vendors involved and create a standardized format. Uh, and that way, any any sort of data really to do with video can just really easily be bought and sold. And to me, I was I was very surprised that they were really pitching this as such a revolutionary thing, to be honest. It, to me, it seemed pretty obvious or, or it seemed like it should certainly exist that you could buy CTV data, you know, if you want to if you've got some tennis shoes you want to sell and you want to put it on a tennis match on CTV, that should be possible. But Field said that for the most part just still isn't possible at all, which seems which seems absolutely insane. Um, but he said it's because all this contextual intelligence is siloed within either the content owner or the video platform and that they have no single marketplace or format in which they can share this. And so Iris TV created this contextual video marketplace. Uh, and it's the first platform where anyone can access what I call the advertiser's holy trinity, which is uh, brand safety information, contextual targeting, and post-campaign reporting. And when you think about it, it's a pretty similar model to what they were doing before in terms of content recommendation. It's just onboarding a load of data from a customer and enriching it with third-party solutions in a standardized format. And Field said they are planning to expand this to many other areas of you know, video, such as analytics, um, and yeah, he's, he seems to think it's a very kind of replicable model. And I just got a few words on, you know, how the partnership with Intel was going. And he seemed to think that both were kindred spirits because they both essentially try and improve other tech businesses. Uh, they just try to make their customers successful and, you know, imp improve the services that their customers are providing and not going uh, direct to consumer. And he said they've now got someone from Intel on the board, which is going really well. Um, and yeah, it was just interesting to hear how how backwards CTV still is. Yeah, I'd I'd be interested in knowing uh, Faultline's brand safety score, mm. I think. But no, yeah, definitely a bit surprising. Um, but what we need is one single standard, I think, to unite all these silos. Surely that can't go wrong. <laughs> so mm. we'll, we'll wait for that to happen, I think, and then we can laugh at it. But thank you very much, Rafi. Um, we'll jump forward now into uh, something Tommy hinted at. Um, I had a rant this week. Uh, and the headline for this one was HDR hits 50% of UHD channels, says nomenclature abusing event. Um, so this was part of a harmonics sort of um, event uh, window. Uh, we had a, a presentation on, on HDR and how you can uh, sort of integrate into your, um, you know, your workflows and your content. And just from the off, um, our teeth were grinding um, because the sort of headline claim was that HDR was now present in 50% of UHD channels. And immediately, uh, if you are as um, anal about these things as, uh, as as we are, or I am at least, um, 
you should know that it should be 100% of UHD channels have HDR because HDR is a prerequisite for the UHD standards as they're defined in the ITU. Um, and, and, and this goes to a sort of a slight other gripe with the event is that it was being staged as if it was an organic conversation. Um, but every single talking point had an accompanying slide. So they were obviously following a kind of prearranged script. And the little questions box, um, you know, we typed our immediately in saying, wait, what do they mean by this? Surely they mean 4K channels, not UHD. Um, and a little answer came back that was you know, completely wrong. But at least there was a human on the other side ready to reply to us, um, despite despite not really understanding the question. But um, yeah, it was a, it was a slightly frustrating panel, really, because... Um, they were sort of celebrating that adoption as uh, a success, but um, our view is that that it's a failure. That it shows how the marketers have um, dressed up these 4K channels as being UHD when they're not UHD, uh, and therefore we're misleading an entirely new generation. And there was there was even mentioned later on in the discussion of. Oh well, you know, VOD has managed to implement HDR really nicely. Um, therefore, uh, live uh, broadcast content needs to have HDR. Otherwise, consumers risk going to a, a HDR channel and and seeing that it's not working, and and therefore you know slagging HDR off to all their friends, saying it's not worth the money, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, which is like a legit risk, um, except that it's being kind of missold to them. Um, so there were sort of lots of lots of um, sort of irritating uh, misuses there um but the the gist of it is that despite what the uhd forum is saying um we should still be like quite annoyed about this um so yeah it's a kind of a woeful answer and the presenters they, they didn't really take any questions from the audience um they they took the whole allotted time to finish it i think um you could see that there were different time zones from the background lighting but there was no way of us knowing whether they were actually presenting live um, or if it was pre-recorded. And, you know, if bits of it are pre-recorded, that's fine. But, like, why go to this length if you're not going to get the sort of audience involved? You know, blah, blah, blah. I think we said this sort of enough. Um, so, yeah, just a bit frustrating. Um, big old rant in there. Um, Dolby um, were, were putting on a pretty good show. Uh, we had Bcom in there, which has a pretty close uh, relationship with Harmonic. Um, they're sort of integrated into their uh, their encoders in some way. We also had Fabrics um, presenting, talking about the sort of way that you would do simultaneous uh, SDR and HDR production feeds and, and how you might go to a sort of a, a single um, shared common uh, HDR workflow, which which was cool. Um, and then we also had an investigation on a little, uh, little quote, um, claim from, uh, I think it was from Harmonic, who was saying that, you know, it's now easy to buy HDR, um, and, we, and that just pricked us up. We were already a bit on the defensive, so we, we went looking. And um, on, on our sort of high street retailers, uh, on the featured page, it's only about 70% uh, penetration for HDR. Uh, and if you switch it to, you know, sort by cheapest, um, unsurprisingly, that falls. Uh, it's down to about 30%. And then if you put it on the most expensive, unsurprisingly, all of those have, have HDR. So like hdr is getting there um it's not a, a mature technology in the sense that it's been properly used but yeah just a weird one another strange event um that just got our hackles up um but yeah that's that's probably enough enough rambling for now i think um so we'll finish up on the on the long form content we'll move now to the the worth noting section so rafi as is tradition 
uh, five years ago today what was happening. Uh, the FCC and the Justice Department had just approved Charter's merger with Time Warner Cable and Bright House Networks. Um, one of the, kind of the main conditions of this approval was that content players and OTT video would be protected. And essentially what this boils down to was that Charter couldn't put a data cap on its customers for the next seven years after 2016, and nor could it employ usage-based broadband pricing or charge interconnection fees. And all of these kind of... Uh, techniques to kind of keep hold charter down were essentially also used on Comcast and AT&T and Verizon um, when they tried to charge Netflix. Um, and charter was also required to build out broadband access to 2 million US residents. Uh, at least 1 million of them were in areas that were sought after by other US providers. And here we are today and charters the US's second largest cable operator and its third largest pay TV provider. And, and data caps were uh, alive and kicking and wasn't it uh, benevolent of the the operators to lift those data caps during our, our lockdown period eh? shouldn't we be grateful um, <laughs> to our, our corporate overlords <laughs> sweet thanks Rafi Tommy any other highlights in here yeah I've got a funny one for you this week so this was initially music to my ears as I uh, read headlines saying that the uh, IBC organizers want to create a festival like feel uh, atmosphere for the uh, for the september event this year um if it goes ahead that is and and you're thinking music and outdoor and free love and stuff but actually <laughs> i think the most festival thing about it is going to be this humongous um fence perimeter that they're going to build around the entire rye venue and anyone who's been to amsterdam knows how humongous it is and how there are various entrances and exits and it sounds like yeah this is all to comply with um covid regulations yeah because it might be pushed pushed back to um uh december when obviously the whole festival vibe that it's going for isn't going to be able to happen in uh, in december so it's september or nothing really for that dream yeah given given our vaccination schedules um, i'm not super confident about a september uh, september ibc um which which is a shame. No, I, I've done Amsterdam in in January and it's it's pretty grey. It feels very very much like Britain, very very homely. Um, sweet. So uh, the sort of other little bit, a uh, little tidbit uh, in in sort of worth noting that I think is quite interesting. Uh, Disney, no, sorry, Prime is now saying, hey, we've got two hundred million subscribers, um, and of course, uh, Netflix took a pasting uh, this week on on the stock market. Um, Netflix is 208 million subs globally. Prime is 200. So big questions there is, you know, what's the penetration? How many how many Prime subscribers are actually Prime Video users? And that's something we dug into in the past. So I will go dig in there, I think. Um, which brings us to the end of the Fault Line podcast. So um, yeah, Tommy, do we have anything lined up for next week? We do. We've got another cable next gen event from Light Reading. I love the Light Reading events um are always pretty cool it's just such a shame it's owned by informer um <laughs> but we've uh, we've also got some rdk stuff going on which is cool and i believe at&t's first quarter of results are due out any minute now so um we'll be analyzing those next week too 
Good stuff. All right, then. Head to rethinkresearch.biz to check us out. You can get a four-week free trial to Faultline. You can also take a peek at the Rethink TV research service, which is where Rafi and I spend most of our time. Um, the podcasting app of your choice hopefully lets you uh, share. So send this to a friend, if you would, or a colleague. Uh, maybe maybe even leave us a little review. That would be nice as well. Um, so, yeah, that's it for us. We'll see you next week. So that's bye-bye from me. Cheers, then. Yeah.